This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 11 The Man on the Top There is a fact at the root of all realities today which cannot be stated too simply. It is that the powers of this world are now not trusted simply because they are not trustworthy. This can be quite clearly seen and said without any reference to our several passions or partisanships. It does not follow that we think such a distrust a wise sentiment to express. It does not even follow that we think it a good sentiment to entertain. But such is the sentiment, simply because such is the fact. The distinction can be quite easily defined in an example. I do not think that private workers owe an indefinite loyalty to their employer. But I do think that patriotic soldiers owe a more or less indefinite loyalty to their leader in battle. But even if they ought to trust their captain, the fact remains that they often do not trust him, and the fact remains that he often is not fit to be trusted. Most of the employers and many of the socialists seem to have got a very muddled ethic about the basis of such loyalty, and perpetually try to put employers and officers upon the same disciplinary plane. I should have thought myself that the difference was alphabetical enough. It has nothing to do with the idealizing of war or the materializing of trade. It is a distinction in the primary purpose. There might be much more elegance and poetry in a shop under William Morris than in a regiment under Lord Kitchener. But the difference is not in the persons or the atmosphere, but in the aim. The British Army does not exist in order to pay Lord Kitchener. William Morris's shop, however, artistic and philanthropic, did exist to pay William Morris. If it did not pay the shopkeeper, it failed as a shop. But Lord Kitchener does not fail if he is underpaid, but only if he is defeated. The object of the army is the safety of the nation from one particular class of perils. Therefore, since all citizens owe loyalty to the nation, all citizens who are soldiers owe loyalty to the army. But nobody has any obligation to make some particular rich man richer. A man is bound, of course, to consider the indirect results of his action in a strike, but he is bound to consider that in a swing, or a giddy-go-round, or a smoking concert, in his wildest holiday or his most private conversation. But direct responsibility, like that of a soldier, he has none. He need not aim solely and directly at the good of the shop, for the simple reason that the shop is not aiming solely and directly at the good of the nation. The shopman is, under decent restraints, let us hope, trying to get what he can out of the nation. The shop assistant may, under the same decent restraints, get what he can out of the shopkeeper. All this distinction is very obvious. At least, I should have thought so. But the primary point which I mean is this, that even if we do take the military view of mercantile service, even if we do call the rebellious shop assistant disloyal, 
that leaves exactly where it was the question of whether he is in point of fact in a good or bad shop granted that all mr Poole's employees are bound to follow forever the cloven pennon of the perfect pair of trousers it is all the more true that the pennon may in point of fact become imperfect granted that all barney barnato's workers ought to have followed him to death or glory it is still a perfectly legitimate question to ask which he was likely to lead them to granted that dr sawyer's boy ought to die for his master's medicines we may still hold an inquest to find out if he died of them while we forbid the soldier to shoot the general we may still wish the general were shot the fundamental fact of our time is the failure of the successful man somehow we have so arranged the rules of the game that the winners are worthless for other purposes they can secure nothing except the prize the very rich are neither aristocrats nor self-made men they are accidents or rather calamities all revolutionary language is a generation behind the times in talking of their futility a revolutionist would say with perfect truth that coal owners know next to nothing about coal mining but we are past that point coal owners know next to nothing about coal owning they do not develop and defend the nature of their own monopoly with any consistent and courageous policy however wicked as did the old aristocrats with the monopoly of land they have not the virtues nor even the vices of tyrants they have only their powers it is the same with all the powerful of today it is the same for instance with the high-placed and high-paid official not only is the judge not judicial but the arbiter is not even arbitrary the arbiter decides not by some gust of justice or injustice in his soul like the old despot dooming men under a tree but by the permanent climate of the class to which he happens to belong the ancient wig of the judge is often indistinguishable from the old wig of the flunky to judge about success or failure one must see things very simply one must see them in masses as the artist half closing his eyes against details sees light and shade that is the only way in which a just judgment can be formed as to whether any departure or development such as islam or the american republic has been a benefit upon the whole seen close such great erections always abound in ingenious detail and impressive solidity it is only by seeing them afar off that one can tell if the tower leans now if we thus take in the whole tilt or posture of our modern state we shall simply see this fact that those classes who have on the whole governed have on the whole failed if you go to a factory you will see some very wonderful wheels going round you will be told that the employer often comes there early in the morning that he has great organizing power that if he works over the colossal accumulation of wealth he also works over its wise distribution all this may be true of many employers and it is practically said of all but if we shade our eyes from all this dazzle of detail if we simply ask what has been the main feature the upshot the final fruit of the capitalist system 
there is no doubt about the answer. The special and solid result of the reign of the employers has been unemployment. Unemployment not only increasing, but becoming at last the very pivot upon which the whole process turns. Or again, if you visit the villages that depend on one of the great squires, you will hear praises, often just, of the landlord's good sense or good nature. You will hear of whole systems of pensions or of care for the sick, like those of a small and separate nation. You will see much cleanliness, order, and business habits in the offices and accounts of the estate. But if you ask again what has been the upshot, what has been the actual result of the reign of landlords, again the answer is plain. At the end of the reign of landlords, men will not live on the land. The practical effect of having landlords is not having tenants. The practical effect of having employers is that men are not employed. The unrest of the populace is therefore more than a murmur against tyranny. It is against a sort of treason. It is the suspicion that even at the top of the tree, even in the seats of the mighty, our very success is unsuccessful. The Other Kind of Man There are some who are conciliated by conciliation boards. There are some who, when they hear of royal commissions, breathe again or snore again. There are those who look forward to compulsory arbitration courts as to the islands of the blessed. These men do not understand the day that they look upon or the sights that their eyes have seen. The almost sacramental idea of representation by which the few may incarnate the many arose in the Middle Ages and has done great things for justice and liberty. It has had its real hours of triumph as when the states-general meant to renew France's youth like the eagles, or when all the virtues of the republic fought and ruled in the figure of Washington. It is not having one of its hours of triumph now. The real democratic unrest at this moment is not an extension of the representative process, but rather a revolt against it. It is no good giving those in revolt more boards and committees and compulsory regulations. It is against these very things that they are revolting. Men are not only rising against their oppressors, but against their representatives, or, as they would say, their misrepresentatives. The inner and actual spirit of workaday England is coming out not in the applause, but in the anger, as a god who should come out of his tabernacle to rebuke and confound his priests. There is a certain kind of man whom we see many times in a day, but whom we do not in general bother very much about. He is the kind of man of whom his wife says that a better husband, when he's sober, you couldn't have. She sometimes adds that he never is sober, but this is in anger and exaggeration. Really, he drinks much less and works much more than the modern legend supposes. But it is quite true that he has not the horror of bodily outbreak natural to the classes that contain ladies, and it is quite true that he never has that alert and inventive sort of industry 
natural to the classes from which men can climb into great wealth. He has grown, partly by necessity, but partly also by temper, accustomed to have dirty clothes and dirty hands normally, and without discomfort. He regards cleanliness as a kind of separate and special costume to be put on for great festivals. He has several really curious characteristics which would attract the eyes of sociologists, if they had any eyes. For instance, his vocabulary is coarse and abusive, in marked contrast to his actual spirit, which is generally patient and civil. He has an odd way of using certain words of really horrible meaning, but using them quite innocently and without the most distant taint of the evils to which they allude. He is rather sentimental, and like most sentimental people, not devoid of snobbishness. At the same time, he believes the ordinary, manly, commonplaces of freedom and fraternity, as he believes most of the decent traditions of Christian men. He finds it very difficult to act according to them, but this difficulty is not confined to him. He has a strong and individual sense of humor, and not much power of corporate or militant action. He is not a socialist. Finally, he bears no more resemblance to a labor member than he does to a city alderman or a die-hard duke. This is the common laborer of England, and it is he who is on the march at last. See this man in your mind as you would see him in the street. Realize that it is his open mind we wish to influence, or his empty stomach we wish to cure and then consider seriously, if you can, the five men, including two of his own alleged oppressors, who were summoned as a royal commission to consider his claims when he or his sort went out on strike upon the railways. I knew nothing against, indeed I know nothing about any of the gentlemen then summoned, beyond a bare introduction to Mr. Henderson, whom I liked but whose identity I was in no danger of confusing with that of a railway porter. I do not think that any old gentleman, however absent-minded, would be likely on arriving at Euston, let us say, to hand his Gladstone bag to Mr. Henderson, or to attempt to reward that politician with twopence. Of the others, I can only judge by the facts about their status as set forth in the public press. The chairman, Sir David Harrell, appeared to be an ex-official, distinguished in, of all things in the world, the Irish constabulary. I have no earthly reason to doubt that the chairman meant to be fair, but I am not talking about what men mean to be, but about what they are. The police in Ireland are practically an army of occupation. A man serving in them or directing them is practically a soldier and of course he must do his duty as such. But it seems truly extraordinary to select as one likely to sympathize with the democracy of England a man whose whole business in life it has been to govern against its will the democracy of Ireland. What should we say if Russian strikers were offered the sympathetic arbitration of the head of the Russian police in Finland or Poland? And if we do not know that the whole civilized world sees Ireland with Poland as a typical oppressed nation, it is time we did. The chairman, 
whatever his personal virtues, must be by instinct and habit akin to the capitalists in the dispute. Two more of the commissioners actually were the capitalists in the dispute. Then came Mr. Henderson, pushing his trolley and cheerily crying, By your leave. And then another less known gentleman, who had corresponded with the Board of Trade, and had thus gained some strange claim to represent the very poor. Now, people like this might quite possibly produce a rational enough report, and in this or that respect even improve things. Men of that kind are tolerably kind, tolerably patriotic, and tolerably businesslike. But if anyone supposes that men of that kind can conceivably quiet any real quarrel with the man of the other kind, the man whom I first described, it is frantic. The common worker is angry exactly because he has found out that all these boards consist of the same well-dressed kind of man, whether they are called governmental or capitalist. If anyone hopes that he will reconcile the poor, I say, as I said at the beginning, that such a one has not looked on the light of day or dwelt in the land of the living. But I do not criticize such a commission except for one most practical and urgent purpose. It will be answered to me that the first kind of man whom I spoke could not really be on boards and committees as modern England is managed. His dirt, though necessary and honorable, would be offensive. His speech, though rich and figurative, would be almost incomprehensible. Let us grant for the moment that this is so. This kind of man, with his sooty hair, or sanguinary adjectives, cannot be represented at our committees of arbitration. Therefore, the other kind of man, fairly prosperous, fairly plausible, at home at least with the middle class, capable at least of reaching and touching the upper class, he must remain the only kind of man for such councils. Very well. If, then, you give at any future time any kind of compulsory powers to set councils to prevent strikes, you will be driving the first kind of man to work for a particular master as much as if you drove him with a whip. The Medieval Villain I see that there have been more attempts at the whitewashing of King John. But the gentleman who wrote has a further interest in the matter, for he believes that King John was innocent, not only on this point, but as a whole. He thinks King John has been very badly treated, though I am not sure whether he would attribute to that Plantagenet a saintly merit, or merely a humdrum respectability. I sympathize with the whitewashing of King John, merely because it is a protest against our waxwork style of history. Everybody is in a particular attitude, with a particular moral attributes. Rufus is always hunting, and Cordelion always crusading, Henry the Eighth always marrying, and Charles I always having his head cut off, Alfred rapidly and in rotation, making his people's clocks and spoiling their cakes, and King John pulling out Jews' teeth with the celerity and industry of an American dentist. Anything is good that shakes all this stiff simplification and makes us remember that these men were once alive 
that is mixed, free, flippant, and inconsistent. It gives the mind a healthy kick to know that Alfred had fits, that Charles I prevented enclosures, that Rufus was really interested in architecture, and that Henry VIII was really interested in theology. And as these scraps of reality can startle us into more solid imagination of events, so can even errors and exaggerations if they are on the right side. It does some good to call Alfred a prig, Charles I a Puritan, and John a jolly good fellow, if this makes us feel that they were people whom we might have liked or disliked. I do not myself think that John was a nice gentleman, but for all that the popular picture of him is all wrong. Whether he had any generous qualities or not, he had what commonly makes them possible, daredevil courage, for instance, and hot-headed decision. But above all, he had a morality which he broke, but which we misunderstand. The medieval mind turned centrally upon the pivot of free will. In their social system, the medievals were too much party per pale, as their heralds would say, too rigidly cut up by fences and quarterings of guild or degree. But in their moral philosophy, they always thought of man as standing free and doubtful at the crossroads in a forest. While they clad and bound the body, and to some extent the mind too stiffly and quaintly for our taste, they had a much stronger sense than we have of the freedom of the soul. For them the soul always hung poised like an eagle in the heavens of liberty. Many of the things that strike a modern as most fantastic came from their keen sense of the power of choice. For instance, the greatest of the schoolmen devotes folios to the minute description of what the world would have been like if Adam had refused the apple. What king's laws, baby's animals, planets would have been in an unfallen world. So intensely does he feel that Adam might have decided the other way, that he sees a complete and complex vision of another world, a world that now can never be. This sense of the stream of life in a man that may turn either way can be felt through all their popular ethics in legend, chronicle, and ballad. It is a feeling which has been weakened among us by two heavy intellectual forces, the Calvinism of the 17th century and the physical science of the 19th. Whatever other truths they may have taught have darkened this liberty with a sense of doom. We think of bad men as something like black men, a separate and incurable kind of people. The Byronic spirit was really a sort of operatic Calvinism. It brought the villain upon the stage, the lost soul, the modern version of King John. But the contemporaries of King John did not feel like that about him, even when they detested him. They instinctively felt him to be a man of mixed passions like themselves, who was allowing his evil passions to have much too good a time of it. They might have spoken of him as a man in considerable danger of going to hell, but they would not have talked of him as if he had come from there. In the ballads of Percy or Robin Hood, it frequently happens that the king comes upon the scene 
and his ultimate decision makes the climax of the tale. But we do not feel, as we do in the Byronic or modern romance, that there is a definite stage direction, enter tyrant. Nor do we behold a deuce ex machina, who is certain to do all that is mild and just. The king in the ballad is in a state of virile indecision. Sometimes he will pass from a towering passion to the most sweeping magnanimity and friendliness. Sometimes he will begin an act of vengeance and be turned from it by a jest. Yet this august levity is not moral indifference. It is moral freedom. It is the strong sense in the writer that the king, being the type of man with power, will probably sometimes use it badly, and sometimes well. In this sense, John is certainly misrepresented, for he is pictured as something that none of his own friends or enemies saw. In that sense, he was certainly not so black as he is painted, for he lived in a world where every one was piebald. King John would be represented in a modern play or novel as a kind of degenerate, a shifty-eyed moral maniac with a twist in his soul's backbone and green blood in his veins. The medievals were quite capable of boiling him in melted lead, but they would have been quite incapable of despairing of his soul in the modern fashion. A striking a fortiori case is that of the strange medieval legend Robert the Devil. Robert was represented as a monstrous birth sent to an embittered woman actually in answer to prayers to Satan, and his earlier actions are simply those of the infernal fire let loose upon earth. Yet though he can be called almost literally a child of hell, yet the climax of the story is his repentance at Rome and his great reparation. That is the paradox of medieval morals, as it must appear to the moderns. We must try to conceive a race of men who hated John and sought his blood and believed every abomination about him, who would have been quite capable of assassinating or torturing him in the extremity of their anger, and yet we must admit that they would not really have been fundamentally surprised if he had shaved his head in humiliation, given all his goods to the poor, embraced the lepers in a Lazar house, and been canonized as a saint in heaven. So strongly did they hold that the pivot of will should turn freely, which now is rusted and sticks. For we, whatever our political opinions, certainly never think of our public men like that. If we hold the opinion that Mr. Lloyd George is a noble tribune of the populace and protector of the poor, we do not admit that he can ever have paltered with the truth or bargained with the powerful. If we hold the equally idiotic opinion that he is a red and rabid socialist, maddening mobs into mutiny and theft, then we expect him to go on maddening them and us. We do not expect him, let us say, suddenly to go into a monastery. We have lost the idea of repentance, especially in public things. That is why we cannot really get rid of our great national abuses of economic tyranny and aristocratic avarice. Progress, in the modern sense, is a very dismal drudge, and mostly consists of being moved on by the police. 
we move on because we are not allowed to move back. But the really ragged prophets, the real revolutionists who held high language in the palaces of kings, they did not confine themselves to saying, onward Christian soldiers, still less onward futurist soldiers. What they said to high emperors and to whole empires was, turn ye, turn ye, why will ye die? End of section 11